Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for how clear it is. We thank you that your word never beats around the bush about anything and never pulls any punches about anything, but it is always straight up and as clear as can be. And sometimes it's difficult to hear the words, to live out the words, but no one can say that they don't know the words and understand the words. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts, that you may grant us an understanding through your spirit of what you have given to us in your word today, and that it would make real change in our hearts and lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably one of the most sought-after areas of people wanting advice is the area of relationship advice. New online dating apps are popping up every day. From radio talk shows to TV talk shows to popular magazines and social media pages to now even being able to hire someone who is called a professional dating coach, millions of people want advice when it comes to their relationships. One social media platform even crowdsources relationship advice, allowing thousands of complete strangers to advise you on what went wrong in your relationship. Regardless of your thoughts about it, it seems like this is one of the most craved areas of information today. Would you believe that there was not only relationship advice, but relationship commandments given in response to questions on relationships 2,000 years ago? Would you believe that? This isn't a new thing. Would you also believe that these relationship commandments are just as relevant and important as they were 2,000 years ago? I had mentioned last week the, the disadvantage that we have as 21st century American believers in Jesus studying these New Testament letters written 2,000 years ago. The popular illustration to best understand this disadvantage is that of being someone uh, of someone being in the same room and someone else talking to another person on the phone. We only get one side of that conversation, but we can reasonably and confidently piece together the context of one side of the conversation to understand the point of that conversation. We saw last week, uh, as referenced in, in chapter 7, verse 1, that the Corinthians had apparently written a previous letter to Paul that included several relationship questions in connection with singleness, marriage, and divorce. One of these questions had to do with the role of sexual intimacy within marriages. We saw last week that Paul in no way belittles the importance of marriage or the importance of sexual intimacy within a marriage relationship. Oppositely, he stressed the importance of sexual intimacy between a husband and wife and how crucial it is for the growth and development of a marriage relationship. In fact, it was stressed that it was one of the most important parts of a marriage because it literally makes a husband and wife one in every way, spiritually, emotionally, physically. If you remember from last week, we talked about how if it doesn't ever seem like there's enough time or you have enough energy or it's never the, or never the right mood to do something about it. 
We saw in chapter 7, verse 5, that if this area of marriage is not intentionally focused on, it's very, very easy for the enemy of our souls and of our marriages to get in and start messing around. Not only that, but sexual intimacy in marriage is a gift from God that we see time and time again in his word for married couples to enjoy as much as possible. That was one of Paul's responses to one of the Corinthians' questions who were confused and were taking Paul's personal position on celibacy and misapplying it to their marriages. Now, Paul answers some more of the Corinthians' questions about relationships and singleness in our passage this morning. So the first point that we come to in our passage is his instruction on singleness. Apparently, the next question the Corinthians had previously written to Paul about had to do with, is it a sin to be single and celibate for the course of one's life? Like we talked about last week, there was a prevailing Jewish belief that it was a sin for one to not seek to be married and to remain single and celibate was a rebellion against the blessing God gave to marriage in Genesis 1 through 2. The question had to do with the Christian's response to that now. Paul starts out this section with a general disclaimer about what he will say throughout the rest of this section. We touched on this last week, but Paul says in verse 7, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, and if you brought your Bible with you, please turn there. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, he says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. It's Paul's personal wish that all believers were single and celibate as he was, but Paul was not making a blanket statement here. Like we touched on last week, this was Paul's whole reasoning behind that. When he, as he says further on, he says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. So directly connected to that context, Paul is not bashing getting married, and that's seen clearly with what he's already uh, commanded the married Corinthian couples, along with his commands to the Ephesians church and the importance of marriage. Rather, like we talked about last week, Paul is elevating the position of celibate singleness to the same level as marriage and making it equally pleasing to God. That's what his whole point is here. As previously referenced, the prevailing Jewish belief at this point was that remaining single was a sin and a rebellion against the blessing God put upon the first married couple in Genesis. So Paul is combating that prevailing Jewish belief by saying, you know what? I personally wish that everyone could be single like me so that the kingdom of God could be radically built and spread around the world without distraction. But at the same time, God gifts every person the way that he sees best, whether with singleness or with marriage. And that's Paul's point. Whatever God gifts someone the gift of whether God gifts someone the gift of lifelong single celibacy to devote their lives to building his kingdom, or he gifts someone a marriage to someone else, that's his decision and his gift to give. Paul was breathing life, encouragement, 
and support into the apparent call towards some people that they will remain single and celibate, but that does not by any means mean that they've lost out on anything or they've messed everything up or that somehow they're somehow inferior to anyone else. That was and still is not true at all. In fact, if you've been gifted with and called to a life of single celibacy, you know who you're in good company with? Well, Jesus, first of all. And then secondly, the great Apostle Paul. You're in good company with them. You have been given the gift of undistracted devotion to serving the Lord with all of your heart. That's what directly leads to Paul's next piece of advice. He's elevated the call to single celibacy to a pedestal right next to the pedestal of marriage in verse 7. So now he gets into what, pra- what that pragmatically looks like in verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Paul's already given one pragmatic commandment to the married couples in the Corinthian church, and that's found in verse 5 that we covered last week. Stop depriving one another, obviously in direct context of loving physical and sexual fulfillment. Whereas that was a command, what Paul says in verse 8 is a pragmatic piece of advice, albeit still under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Notice how Paul words verse 8. But I say that it is good. That is not a commandment, but still a pragmatic legitimizing of the call to single celibacy. Paul wants to encourage those who are single and who are widowed that if they believed God was calling them to remain single and celibate and devote the rest of their lives to the kingdom of God, they weren't somehow failures or had had given up or were sinning. That's what he was encouraging them with. In fact, as Paul will back up in verses 32 through 33, this was a legitimate, good, great, and high calling in serving God. At the same time, Paul wants to make it perfectly clear that if they don't feel like God was ultimately calling them to this great and sacrificial position, and they still wanted to get married or remarried if they were widowed or divorced. They also weren't somehow giving up on the position of of singleness and celibacy. Verse 9, But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, Paul is not just giving the only purpose and reason for getting married, because that would be very uh, trivial and and, and, uh, surface related. He's not giving the only purpose and reason for getting married, but simply one pragmatic purpose and reason, and that is to avoid falling into the sexual immorality he just spent two entire chapters on. In verse 9, we see that if someone is honest with themselves and simply does not see themselves being able to live a lifelong single and celibate life without giving into their sex drive and feelings, that it's a good thing for them to keep looking to get married. As we see in both verse 8 and verse 9, Paul is not belittling either single celibacy or marriage, but putting them on the same level and saying, if you think God is leading you to live a lifelong life of single celibacy, that's a good thing. And if you think God is leading you to get married, that's a good thing. 
God has gifted each person differently according to what he's calling them to with their lives. And so he gives instruction on singleness. He gives encouragement to those who felt that God was leading them to lead a single celibate life devoted to his kingdom. And next he gives instruction on marriage. Paul then turns to answer a couple of questions from the Corinthians regarding situations in connection with marriage now. We also see the difference in how he answers the first one of these marriage questions with how he answered the question about singleness before this, verses 10 through 11. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. The big difference in how Paul answers this question is that not only is Paul giving instruction under guidance of the Holy Spirit, but he's also reminding the Corinthians what Jesus has already outright commanded. And what is this commandment? That a woman should not leave or divorce her husband and that a man should not leave or divorce, divorce his wife. This, in and of itself, brings up a whole new slew of questions that I'm sure you've already thought of. Before we get into this any further, I want to note that, yes, there are two different words used in the Greek in reference to the wife separating from her husband and the husband divorcing his wife. According to one biblical scholar, the difference in words is most likely due to the common way of saying things back in Paul's day, but they both mean the same exact thing. In other words, on both the husband and wife's parts, neither one of them should seek divorce from the other. If they do separate, they should not get remarried, but should remain unmarried or reconcile with each other. This seems incredibly radical for us today, doesn't it? these words. But this is nothing new. Paul is not pulling some command out of the air previously non-existent. This is a direct connection to Jesus's words back in Matthew 10 verses 2 through 12 which we will read in its entirety. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. These are direct uh, quotes from Genesis. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. Why I wanted to read this passage in its entirety is that I wanted us to see how important marriage is to God. 
We've seen how important marriage is to God and its inextricable connection to humans created in the image of God and therefore why it's only for one man and one woman and why it's the only God-glorifying relationship for sexual expression between one man and one woman. Now we see how important marriage is to God in its preservation. As one biblical scholar put it in connection with Mark 10, as a rule, there should be no divorce between a husband and wife. Jesus further clarified this when he said, You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, and that's sexual unfaithfulness, causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Very strong words, aren't they? In verses 10 through 11 of our passage this morning, who is Paul directly giving God's commands to? Not just any married couples, but what kind of married couples? Christian, married couples in the church. That is, these commands are specifically given to married couples where both the husband and the wife are believers in Jesus. Between what we see Jesus commanding and Paul saying that God commands in our passage this morning, what conclusion do we come to? That God demands us to see marriage as important and cherished as he sees it, so much so that Christian husbands and wives must not divorce each other for any reason other than sexual unfaithfulness. For any other reason, reconciliation must be sought in every way possible. And if things are absolutely irreconcilable, the husband and wife must not remarry anyone else. That's a very tough but very clear conclusion that God's word commands. It's very clear because as representatives of Christ's kingdom and of being made in the image of God and being reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, believers in Jesus must be good representatives of God's gift and institution of marriage. Since we've been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus, believing husbands and wives must make every effort imaginable to heal their marriage. Because of that, while Jesus leaves room for divorce based on sexual unfaithfulness, that's not a requirement. In fact, because of God's never-ending grace and forgiveness towards us through the power and strength of God, forgiveness and reconciliation can even be extended in that most heartbreaking of a situation. Now what about if one spouse in a marriage is an unbeliever, or made a verbal declaration of faith, but is not living out that faith and bearing any spiritual fruit as evidence of that faith. Well, we talked about Paul's instruction on singleness. We talked about his instruction on marriage, the preservation of it. Next, we'll talk about the instruction by extension. Paul's answer to the single and celibate was his elevation and support for answering a good and high calling to remain single and celibate for the kingdom of God. Paul's answer to the Corinthians' questions, uh, question of if it's permissible for a believing 
husband and wife to seek divorce for any reason other than one being sexually unfaithful to the other is a reminder of what Jesus' command already was on the subject, that as a rule, no, it's not permissible. Now, Paul extends Jesus' outright command to, again, a personal advisement, even though still under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And what is that answer and instruction? Verses 12 through 13. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. In general, Paul is saying that if there are married couples where one spouse is a believer and the other isn't, that the believing spouse shouldn't seek divorce from the unbelieving spouse. There may have been a misunderstanding of the commandments and the Jewish law for the nation of Israel not intermarrying among the pagan people groups that the believing Corinthians were tempted or actively seeking to apply to their marriages. As Paul directly clarifies a little bit further on, his point in verses 12 through 13 is this. Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. As it pertains to verses 12 and 13 that we just read, Paul says, if you were already married to an unbeliever when you became a believer yourself, don't seek divorce now from that unbeliever. And even if you were a believer when you married your still unbelieving spouse, don't now seek divorce from that unbeliever. Why? We find that out in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now this can be a very confusing verse if it were just taken at a cursory reading. For it could very easily be misunderstood as a verse contradicting everything else in the Bible that says that each person's faith is an individual commitment to the Holy Spirit working in their hearts to accept Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord. According to biblical scholarship, this does not mean an unbelieving spouse or children from that marriage will be given salvation simply through association with a believer. However, this does teach that a believing spouse will bring spiritual blessings to the whole family that normally are only connected to being set apart. The literal meaning of the word sanctification. As noted by one biblical scholar, we see precedence for this in Jacob's relationship to his uncle-slash-father-in-law's family and Joseph with his Egyptian master's family. We read in both in Genesis, Please listen to me, Laban replied, Jacob's uncle and father-in-law. I have become wealthy, for the Lord has blessed me because of you. Not because of Laban, but because of Jacob. And further on, from the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. Again, not because of Potiphar, but because of Joseph. 
Not only this, but any children born into this marriage have the blessing of having a believing parent still married to their unbelieving parent who is actively sharing the gospel of Jesus' love, death, resurrection, and return, and how they too can have this personal relationship with Jesus. That same concept extends to that unbelieving spouse. Verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? If the believing spouse stays with and married to their unbelieving spouse, it's that unbelieving spouse's best shot at becoming a believer themselves. Many people can gratefully share that story of how they came to Jesus, that their spouse became a believer first and through their witness of a changed life led them to faith in the Lord as well. That may take a very long time even for, for, for that unbelieving spouse to come around. But who knows, as Paul says, if in time and prayer, even after a very long time, that unbelieving spouse may finally put their faith in Jesus. So believers married to unbelievers, don't give up. Keep your testimony of faith to them. Keep sharing Christ's love with them. Keep supporting them as your spouse and keep praying for them. You never know what God will finally do in their life. Now one note on a believer who isn't married to a, an unbeliever yet, but is thinking about it. On this topic, people often cite this verse in Paul's future words to the same church and his recorded, second recorded letter to them. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? You may have heard the word translated bound here as meaning unequally yoked. You may have heard that phrase before too. Very often this verse is cited as a commandment against a believer marrying an unbeliever. If you look at the direct context of that verse, however, according to conservative biblical scholarship, this is not directly referencing marriage nor business agreements, but the church having too close of a relationship with pagan idolaters. However, by general extension, it's not a good idea to knowingly marry an unbeliever due to all the many problems that can happen down the road. A husband and wife simply cannot be one in every way together if there is not that basic spiritual oneness. In fact, when Paul advises widowed people on the topic of remarriage, he says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, and I emphasize this, but only if he loves the Lord. That's probably the strongest verse in the New Testament for believers to only seek to marry other believers. Lastly, Paul, ever the pragmatic one, gives one more piece of instruction, verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves... Let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. If the unbelieving spouse in the marriage insists on a divorce or physically leaves and abandons the believing spouse, then there is one more concession for divorce. 
According to verse 15, the believing spouse in that situation should not feel like they should remain faithful to that spouse and marriage and is free to accept that divorce or be freed from that marriage. Obviously, Paul's instruction was given as answers to specific questions some in the Corinthian church had for him. A situation may or may not match up with the answers of examples in these verses, and in those cases, biblical counsel may be needed. As we've seen, the institution of marriage is held in high honor by God. It's not just a piece of paper, and it's not something to be viewed flippantly or selfishly. Rather, it was created in part to be an illustration of God's faithfulness to the church. If we don't want God to view his relationship with us lightly, which I'm most certain none of us here does, we can't view our marriages lightly. To anyone who is married, fight for that marriage. Fight for it. Fight for your spouse. Pray strongly for your spouse. Fight any spiritual warfare that is threatening to undo your marriage. Do everything you can to grow and strengthen your marriage. Be intentional and purposeful. Do not think it comes easily or you can just coast. Why? For your enemy is stalking around like a roaring lion, actively seeking for who and which marriages he can devour. If there is trouble in your marriage, there is always hope. There is always help, assistance, and healing that can happen. If you think you may need some pastoral counseling with your marriage, please see me. If you are wondering how a past marriage may affect you now, please come talk to me about it. If you are single and celibate and you feel that God has called you to that position and has strengthened you in that position to have the necessary self-control, rejoice in the living out of that calling. Rejoice in it. As Paul rejoiced, you are able to focus your entire life on serving God in whatever ways he calls you to and to build his kingdom in an incredible way. That is truly a good and high calling. If you've been waiting to meet the person you want to marry, God has lots of exciting work for you to do for him while you wait on him. God gives to each of us a gift in how he wants us to live our lives. Cherish that gift in whatever form it takes. Trust him for the gift that he's given to you. Let us all rejoice in the gifts that he has given to us to protect them, to strengthen them, to grow them, and to ultimately bring him glory in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this clear instruction on different situations. Sometimes it's very difficult to swallow, but Lord, we're thankful for your clarity and for your strength and your power and your courage to do what needs to be done.
Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would equip each of us in the gifts of the lives that you have given to us to live them out as best as we can, to live them out with relying on your strength and your power, growing them, using them, and ultimately giving you glory with them. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.